Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show, I'm delighted to say that we have Christian Fleming joining us. Christian is the Managing Director of North Star IT, a business IT support provider based in West Sussex. Uh, Christian, good morning and welcome to the programme. Good morning, Scott. Thank you for inviting me on. It's a real pleasure, Christian, having you with us today. Um, it's a more humid day for it compared to the nice weather that we've had in uh, recent weeks, but um, still all right. We're indoors and away from the rain. Um, I think a good place to start here would be by addressing the elephant in the room, wouldn't it? And that's the fact that we're recording this podcast on the morning of the 24th of June 2021, and we are therefore still living under some form of social restrictions as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, and in some way shape or form that has been the case now for the best part of the last 14 or 15 months looking back over that period of time by and large christian to what extent would you say this whole pandemic has affected you and your business well it's it's been it's it's very much a a a, 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 a sort of two edges i can never remember the expression but um, thankfully, working in the IT industry, we've been an industry being pretty much in demand and uh, and shielded in some respects. I wouldn't necessarily say in the short term we've been a massive beneficiary, unless I could have wound back the clock 18 months and stockpiled uh, a thousand laptops, in which case I probably would have raked it in in that time. Um but we've we've been shielded on one side, but then I'd be delusional if I said that we've not seen an impact. Uh, certainly, during the first days or first weeks of lockdown one, uh, sitting in my office building alone as the entire team went to go and work from home, and and I manned the fort with some deliveries coming and going, and uh, trying to keep the team spirits driving along. Uh, but the although contract work continued to go, but project type work, um, upgrading and replacing servers, infrastructure, uh, we usually reg- have a steady stream of desktop computers going through the office on a regular basis, and that all ground to a halt. Uh, I think we were on target to finish the year end, which for us is in May uh, last year. I think we were on target to finish about twelve to fourteen percent up year on year. And when we year-ended, we were up 1.8%, I think. And although for some businesses, I know that growth is growth, especially under that, uh, in, in that environment, is, is still a, um, something to be um, cheered. But for us, and certainly for me personally as a business owner, thinking three months earlier what we were on target to achieve, it, it, was, quite, it was quite a shock. And on top of that, Unlike under normal days when you're in in an office, or I certainly am with my team around me and you support one another and you keep yourself motivated, walking around that office building with nobody in it, it was was quite a daunting time. Um, But fast forward to where we are now, 
and we've just year-ended again. I I can remember when when we were put into lockdown on the 23rd of March, thinking, oh, this time's going to drag by, and we're over a year later, and where has that time gone? I've absolutely no idea, but we've, we've grown, thankfully, at a, at a uh, larger number than we did last year, and in that time, we've employed two people as well, or two more people, so I'm quite optimistic about the future from here on, but it's certainly had its challenges without doubt. It certainly has, hasn't it? And we've seen business having to adapt and to innovate on an unprecedented scale to just keep things ticking over and you know keep things running during uh, this time and that's been an immense challenge and i think it has had um its impact on sort of leadership um on of course morale as well um and when it comes to sort of adapting to those remote working models that we've seen by and large implemented all across the country in various businesses in some ways it takes a change in leadership approach as well doesn't it because it's very different leading a team of people when you're all there together in one space as opposed to doing it from afar when you're sort of scattered across the country in various ways? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and innovate is what we've had to do. Mm. And, and we, we're trading in an environment that moves at a, at a lightning pace. I mean, I've, uh, as of November this year, I've worked in the IT industry for 25 years. And I find that number, just to say it aloud, staggering because I can remember my first day as though it was months ago and to to cast my mind back as to where we were as an industry and, and to put some context onto it, loading um, uh, windows with floppy disks back then. And yeah, I think I... I I've got one as a souvenir in my office drawer, but, but that that technology as as it still was is is irrelevant now, only twenty five years later. Um but innovate we've had to do and that's that's not just about how we deliver work and support to our clients, but also how we work and interact with one another. And online meetings have well, obviously were going on in a more corporate world and have done for years, in in, in fact, decades. I, I was doing them in the banking in, um, industry over two decades ago, but the technology was, was only really available to big budgets back then. And now uh, one-person businesses can use it, and, mm. and we've had to embrace it. I have to admit, sort of being on the front line, some people have embraced it more easily than others. Um, I do a weekly uh, business networking group, and, and there are still some weeks that people are struggling with the mute button and the, uh, the camera button, but uh, it, it's, it's forced us all to innovate and rethink how we work. And I'd, I'd like to think that for the vast majority of businesses, we've, we've done pretty damn well under the most extreme circumstances any of us have, have known in modern times. I mean, I've, I've, I, I only said it yesterday I think considering we traded through the banking crisis, that seems like a storm in a teacup compared to the last year and a bit. It, it really did. And, but I think, I think most businesses and most people uh, working in those businesses have really have, have adjusted at, at, a, at, at a lightning pace considering what was happening and how quickly we've had to adapt to it. 
I can imagine it has been, as you say, uh, the last year, probably the most difficult challenge of your 25 years running your own business. And I have to say congratulations on the 25th anniversary. I can imagine it's been a real eventful time and certainly, as you said there, a real time of change and perhaps not the sort of anniversary celebration you'd have had in mind. Uh, But um, if you could go back essentially to when you did first set up um, North Star IT back in 1996, armed with the knowledge that you have now, Christian, um, as well as, of course, stocking up on uh, laptops ahead of COVID. Um, is there anything, perhaps, that you would maybe do differently business-wise, armed with that knowledge you have now? Well, it's, it's not quite 25 years. It's 25 years of working, but um, mm. it's 22 years of Northstar, um, which was an anniversary last month, actually. Uh-huh. But, um, but uh, you know, I there is something I personally did last year it's not so much something that I would reflect and do differently, but it is certainly something I learned from surviving trading through the banking crisis. And, and I remember listening to a radio program on Radio 4 while driving back from a client in West Wales on a Friday evening. Maybe that was something I'd reflect on. Driving back from Wales on a Friday evening was a dreadful idea. It took a long time. Um, but... Uh, there were there were three business owners being interviewed on this program, and they'd all grown their businesses through the banking crisis and significant growth, double digit growth. And one, and they were all asked the same question. And one of them, um, one of the answers to the question was, "What is a bit of advice you could give that you lived through and lived through?" the banking crisis that enabled you to grow your business that would be a tip to other people. And those words resonated years later through lockdown one, especially is I stopped listening to the news. It just became, and of course we've got 24 hour news feeds now and it became 24 hour news feeds of what seems like minute by minute saying the same thing in different ways, managing to scramble experts out of every single corner possible Mm. to say the same thing, to theorize over the same thing over, over an event that nobody had an answer to. And it was depressing. It really was depressing, and I took a step back from the news. I'd, I'd read the, the headlines in the morning and the uh, the evening on on uh, the BBC News app, but other than that, I just I took a step back. I only engaged with social media when I needed to for, for business marketing activities, and aside from that, I I focused on on things I could influence and make a difference with, and I think maybe the one thing I probably would have done a little bit differently uh, is I would have replaced our phone system a few months earlier um, because at the beginning, we were all convinced that in a month's time, this will start to blow over and things will return to normal. Obviously, they didn't. And I don't think there will be a normal as we used to know it. If anything, looking at the bright side, is this innovation we've had to go through about work practices I think that this is going to revolutionise how business works forever. Mm. Um, If anything, I think it's forced us to leapfrog into the future of what probably would have happened anyway, but all of our hands have been forced. And and I know moving forward, I'm, I'm going to try my very best to strike a balance between how on the 
edge of of the team that are, are doing the work as, as far as uh, our support services and being a business owner and trying to strike a balance to give the team a better work-life balance but still trying to cherry pick the best of what we can achieve by working closer together while striking a balance with utilizing all of this innovation we've embraced over the last year and a bit to to get something better and and that's ultimately something the IT industry has done very well through its history we innovate mm. we innovate we innovate um but I think previously a lot of it has been innovating in how we deliver our service to our clients but this has actually made us reflect on the inside and the phone system we had was great it did exactly the job that we wanted uh, but ours started creaking months into the pandemic and and so I replaced it with a system where we can now unplug our phones take them anywhere and and work as though we are we're still in one building and and that has meant because at the beginning we transferred all of our phones to our call handling service that usually handles calls if we're as an overflow and we just put the whole lot on on um diver and then messages came through to all of our team and they returned calls on their mobiles but that was something i was really anxious about because i take communication with our customers really seriously i'm not saying we get it perfect all the time but it is something as a business i take pride in and all of a sudden we've been cut off from it so actually, and that, and that was something replacing the phone system did. So that's something I would, if I could wind the clock back, I'd whisper into my own ear a year earlier, let's do that, let's get it right. And then that was the only thing really that stopped us as a business from being completely mobilized and being able to work anywhere at any time. Mm. I think there are so many important things to take away from that. Not, of course, just the innovation um, and revolutionization of communication, but also the fact that the working environment, the way we do business in this country is going to be much changed as a result of COVID because there's been so much more trust now that has sort of blossomed between business leaders and their employees, given how well they've taken to flexible working, that even though it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach and there is likely to be hybrid working practices implemented in future, you know, there's going to be flexible working here for the long term, isn't there, in some way, shape or form? It's going to become the new status quo and the way we do business in this country is ultimately never going to be the same as a result. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I do believe it's something we can all gain from, not only as a business, as, as my team that I, I represent and, and try my best to always do what I can to support all of their individual needs. And, and that as a business owner and, and leader is always something that is a nonstop challenge because everyone needs something a bit different. There is no one size fits all, but, mm. but of course we've got equality to take into it. You can't, you can't say one person can do one thing and then someone else who does a very similar job, no, you can't do that. So it's all about striking a balance. But, but I can personally say that it's opened my mind to being able to do things in a different way. Trust is a big part. I've, I've always had trust in my team, but, but when you're able to, everyone clocks in at a certain time, uh, especially if they're office-based staff and, and, and you're just used to seeing them, then all of a sudden not seeing them. And, and aside from seeing the, the engage lights come and go on the phone system, you don't, you don't really know, but, but it does challenge you. 
but there's but there's something else from a personal point of view is that as I started to open my mind to the future beyond the pandemic and the resilience it can give our business in being able to work as a hybrid type model, it also meant that I started to look upon as as a business owner, well, if that works for them, as in my team, why can't I have a bit of that? Now, how I hope to be able to work in the future is going to be slightly different. I mean, ultimately, a business as, as, and all the time, energy and money that you invest in it to make it work, hopefully, and grow, hopefully, um, that there's got to be some rewards in it. Because I can certainly say government after government in my 22 years of running a business have gradually cut off bit by bit a lot of the perks that there are. However, this has made me reflect as a business owner that actually there's probably more longevity in me running and owning my business because it's going to bridge a gap between my one day retirement and where I am now. It's not going to be work, work, work until I decide, well, that's it, I'm going to retire, I'm going to invoke my exit strategy. Actually, there's a whole big gray area in the middle, a whole transition from one to the other. So rather than working away for me what might be for the next 10 years and then say, well, right, I'm sort of getting ready to retire, probably what it's going to be, because I love work. For me, I mean, plenty of people that know me have labelled me as as a workaholic, but but I don't always see it as work. I genuinely love what I do. And I always feel sadness for people that I that I meet or know of that don't. They've never been able to find that thing that they really love doing in a working environment. But but I do. I don't want to retire in five years' time by spending five years really pushing everything and going as hard as I can. I, I spoke to another client earlier in the week, and he said, I'll probably work until I'm 70. I don't want to work five days a week. Well, neither do I. But I'll probably continue to work. And this new innovation of and, and, and us opening our minds of a hybrid working model actually can mean, well, as a business owner, well, if my staff can have a little bit of their cake and eat it, why can't I? Just in a way that is nurtured, in a way that suits my ambitions better. So actually, I think it's 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 good for everybody. And and let's look at something slightly off topic, but look at how our public transport system grinding to a halt. Trains at rush hour. I mean, I'm lucky because I I live in Brighton, so uh, when I get a train to London, I'm at, I'm at the beginning of the line. So you always get there a few minutes early, and you virtually guarantee the seat. And um, but sometimes coming back the other way, I might not necessarily be at the beginning of the line, and you're crushed in like sardines. I mean, if that was if that was a bus, if it was a car, if it was. Um, uh, numerous other forms of transport, it would probably be illegal for having too many people squeezed together, not having, you. there's no seatbelt like in a car. Um, there's no maximum capacity like there is on, on a bus. Um, it probably wouldn't be legal. And, and of course, Britain invented the railways. It, our infrastructure is, is, is old. It's not cheap or easy to be able to upgrade. In the southeast of England, is that land is expensive. It's not. It's not an easy solution to fix. An easy problem to fix. However, if if bigger business and smaller business starts working in a more hybrid sense, 
Well, that means we make more efficient use of the infrastructure we've got. You only have to look at the difference between getting on a train from Brighton to London at half seven to half eight in the morning or get a one at half past ten and you go from squeezed in like a sardine to you can literally swing a cat around and not, pardon, I obviously wouldn't swing a cat around, but you, but you know the point, and not hit anybody. Um, well, that seems so wasteful. So there's, there's benefits all over. And I, I think it is, I think some businesses already have been in the headlines of saying, right, that's it. As soon as lockdown comes out, that's it. We expect everyone back in the office as we were. But I think the businesses that are actually seeing an opportunity are the ones that are going to engage in a hybrid model. That hybrid model will vary depending on what you do for a business. So we're, we're a smaller company. We're a team of nine at the moment, hopefully going to be 10 in the coming coming few months. But um, we've obviously got a legal health and safety minimum. We've got to make sure that there's always at least two people in the building so that there's no one lone working. And so having spent the earlier part of lockdown there on my own, obviously as a business owner, sometimes the rules are a little different. But um, so, trust me, you don't want to be in that building on your own, even if it wasn't legal. It's, it's lonely. Equally as much, it could be that you live on your own. Well, living at home five days a week, working at home five days a week may not suit you as much as being in being in the office. But if you can strike a balance, I think that there's a wealth of benefits that go literally from the top to the to the lowest level and, and not just directly in the business, whether it's the service provider or the service user. But as I said, the infrastructure that joins us, the the, the traditional rush hour on the road, there's, there's so many benefits. And I, th- I think it... it Although I do genuinely believe every cloud has a silver lining. You've just got to open your eyes to it. And I, mm. and I think really it means that there's quite an exciting time ahead of us. I think that's very right. And I think I'm going to go back to something that you mentioned earlier as well um, about sort of businesses excelling during the banking crisis because history does show doesn't it that some of the most successful businesses are born out of times of economic hardship and so even though people might be looking at the labor market at the moment and seeing not the nicest looking statistics now is actually a very good time for those of an entrepreneurial mindset to actually consider starting a business isn't it Absolutely. And I, and, and I think that that was one of the most exciting things. I mean, we as a business, we, uh, there's only one vertical sector we don't, we don't engage with. Um, but we, to, to be honest with you, we've never really had any luck with it. Every time we try, it never goes anywhere. So we've sort of just put it to one side and said, that's obviously not for us. There are some businesses that specialize in that vertical. They do well out of it. It's obviously not for us. And that's education. Um, but the um, but the rest of it uh, means that I have the privilege of being able to talk to other business owners in different industries and hear what is happening in theirs. One one particular one, a local a local business here in Brighton that manufactures uh, and installs signage, and they they do all of our um, they did all of our building signage, our van wraps, and everything, and. And speaking to that business owner is always a good indicator about what's going on. And and actually, the first few months, I, I really felt for the guy that owned the business because his building was shut down. His team were all put on furlough. He'd been trading for over 25 years and was thinking, 25 years of hard work is about to go down the pan. I've got a business that is, is now dormant, is in stasis and worse. It, it's hemorrhaging money, even even though there were 
some grants available. He was um, sort of in a bit of a, um, a grey area where he didn't seem to apply for one and, he, and not for the other. But um, but it was it was really demoralising to speak to him and, and hear how on the edge he was. However, fast forward a few months, and then all of a sudden, the green shoots were appearing and the excitement in his voice when I spoke to him about what was going on. And, and he's one of those businesses that I've considered always to be a bit on the front line. Historically, the same applied around the banking crisis. Some of our clients are working construction. Now, they were very much shielded from this for the most part because they could still trade, at least until they started running out of raw materials because all the merchants were closed. But um, but construction for me has always been one of those clients, one of those industries on the front line. Listen to them because they're predicting what's happening six months ahead, and and those construction clients, I listen to them, and and I could predict trends because of what they were telling me. But the businesses like the signage company, where where um, the end of summer, beginning of autumn, there was a lot of hope, a lot of optimism. Those green shoots were appearing. And it happens. Bigger companies make make employees redundant. They get any, a redundancy payment. Some take, take a, a holiday sabbatical from work. Some people go looking for another job in a similar environment. Others get that entrepreneurial spark and, and decide no. I, I, I thankfully didn't start my business in the wake of an economic disaster, but it was that spark of, you know, I think I could do it better. I, there are some decisions I've, I've listened to of my bosses in, in the company that I, I started work for in 1996. And no, I was, I was thinking, I wouldn't do it like that. I think you can put more value in doing it that way. And in business, that's a lesson that I've learned. The clients you really want are the ones that use the word value, not price, not cheap, value. And that's very much how I've looked at things. Look at value everywhere. And and through a disaster like this, those green shoots start appearing. And if you look for them, it's, it's really considering how depressing it was uh, a little over a year ago, there's a lot of optimism out there at the moment, mm. and especially in the business environment that I, I trade in. And that's really encouraging to see. Yeah, and I think we do need to really embrace that optimism going forward because it is so, so infectious and there is still that just lingering element of uncertainty there as to whether we are going to see all social restrictions going on time. And as we look ahead to July the 19th and the weeks and months beyond that, Christian, um, thinking about your business and thinking about the IT industry at large, what are your hopes for the next 12 months and where would you really like the industry to be heading over that period of time just before we wrap things up? Oh, I, th- I think as an industry, we're, we're moving more into a flexible work environment, both people, infrastructure. I think more and more clients are mo- moving their, service, their business infrastructure into the cloud. So They've got resilience for what for what uh, systems they use for their for their team. Their, their team can work anywhere. Uh, I, I personally, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to add in the next twelve months probably two people to our team. So we'll get we'll get into double digits for the first time. Um, that personally is something my my most proud thing that I am, or the the thing I'm most proud of 
is is employing people. I, I, I don't come from a, a privileged background. I didn't have a blank check from the Royal Bank of Mum and Dad to start a business. I, I don't have a, a swanky business degree. Um, I've, I've been to a state school. And uh, I started my business with uh, with a bit of determination, a bit of stubbornness. Oh, thank you there, Dad. Um, but I but I do believe that they're engaging with that optimism and 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 positivity. I do believe there is some uh, opportunities to grow, and even in the wake of the banking crisis, and this was something I was saying then, even if the economy shrank by 10%, I think was actually the number I was clocking out of the sky at the time, the British economy isn't shutting up shop and going home. Yes, of course, nobody wants to see a 10% drop in our income. But relatively speaking, if across the nation, if on an average we lost 10% of our income, life would go on. We'd still be getting up and going to work, and mm. and and all and and everything is rebooting. I, and that first day, the outside hospitality opened. I had I had someone coming coming to the house. I can't remember what it was. I think it was um, I think it was my oven was being cleaned. Actually, one of those jobs you know everybody hates to do. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I I drove along Brighton Seafront to where my office is uh, near Worthing, and the hotels were open. And the cafes and restaurants and, and terraces were, were bustling. And you could see down on the lower promenade while I was sitting at traffic lights, you could see people sitting outside in the sunshine. And it felt like Brighton was awakening from, from a coma. And it was so uplifting. I, I felt like I drove with, with an adrenaline shot in me. And, and I think that's the way we've got to look at it. There's some serious growth opportunities ahead. And, and I'm not saying the government have got it spot on. Of course they haven't. And, and, and I certainly don't want to go on a political rant because that's not what this is about. However, what the government, I think, have done a pretty good job of is they've managed to put certain businesses and teams into stasis, ready to reboot as quickly as possible and to hit the ground running. Hopefully, this Freedom Day, as it's being nicknamed, version two, because obviously we were supposed to already be there, mm. but hopefully that's going to come ahead. If it, gets, if it gets postponed a few more weeks, then so be it. However, business is ready on the edge to sprint into action. Thankfully, because there wasn't just mass redundancies. Because if we were all now facing the starting, maybe with a team on average a third smaller than we went in, that would slow the recovery down massively. But thankfully, a lot of businesses aren't in that position, and teams that are are returning from furlough. And they, as I say, in all the industry the industries that we work in, and business owners I speak to, they're all saying the same thing. Things are really starting to light up, and they and it's not in a slow uh, a slow speed. They're really accelerating, and that that I think is if you keep the focus, keep positive. There's, there's opportunities, and there there are still unfortunately people were made redundant, whether it be immediately or as some businesses unfortunately didn't didn't see the hope that things would return to normal so quickly. So there's a pool of talent out there. Go get them because, mm. because it is certainly a time to recruit. 
and uh, and I, I do think the coming year is is, is going to be good, and then hopefully that year, then then we'll gradually start the payback. As obviously we've got we've got we've got a mountain of debt to pay back because that's the price we paid to keep things limping along, keeping those businesses and teams in spaces, so that we're not turning this into a great depression like there was in the thirties in the United States. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting time indeed for business and for the nation at large as we move out of social restrictions, hopefully, and start to see just what shape that economic recovery is going to take. And hopefully business rises to the challenge once again, looks to that pool of talent that we have here and provides the opportunities that people need, because there are going to be a lot of people out there looking for work and willing to upskill and move into new industries. So it's a real time of change, a real time of overhaul, and all we can do is embrace it. Uh, Christian, I've got to say um i've thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed having you join us on the program today it's been a real eye-opening experience for me and the positivity is just infectious as well and i think as we start to actually understand how the recovery is going to take its form it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the show at some point in these coming months just to catch up and reassess how things are at that point in time I'd be delighted to, and, and and hopefully there will be some things to report back about how things have continued to change, and and uh, for my team, the business, and hopefully myself as well. Yeah, hopefully there is, uh, Christian. I look forward to uh, certainly uh, seeing how things are um, a few months down the line. Um, for now, just because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, do continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on, and I'm confident that better days are certainly ahead of us. Thank you, Scott, and you too. It was a real pleasure for me to welcome Christian Fleming, Managing Director of North Star IT in West Sussex, onto the programme today. And coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who's going to be offering his take on the events of the 14 months that we've had and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead of us. And that, as I say, is coming up on the programme now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. 
Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between 
the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And 
one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. 
on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- cut, a shutdown, um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.